Hello, and welcome back to the Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and this episode is the audio version of an event I put together with the Club of Pep and a panel from U.S. political journal National Review on media, journalism, and politics in the U.S., which took place on March 17th. I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you again to our panelists, Dale, David, and Kevin for joining, and to Ellie Spicer and the rest of the PEP committee for their help in putting this event together. Enjoy the episode. All right, we got, uh, we got, I think we got enough people in here to start with the introductions here, if that's, uh, if that's all the same. Works for me. So we have uh, Kevin Williamson, top left there. He is a national, he is National Review's roving correspondent the author of several books, most recently, Big White Ghetto. He spent the first part of his career as a newspaper editor in India, West Texas, and Philadelphia, and also has worked as a theater critic in New York, where he also taught at King's College. Then we have at the bottom there, David Harrisanyi. Har- almost, almost screwed that up. It, was, that, uh, was that correct there, David? Close enough. Close enough. Yeah. Arsani, there we yeah. are. He is a senior writer at National Review, a nationally syndicated columnist, and the author of five books. He was a founding editor of The Federalist and a columnist at the Denver Post. In a previous life, he was a sports writer with the Associated Press, Sports Illustrated Online, and MLB.com. And last but not least, we have Dale Brott. He is the chairman of the board at National Review. His business career includes founding and running a software corporation, Although he's uh, not a journalist like his fellow panelists, Dale did want me to point out that he was managing editor of his college newspaper, where he met his wife of 41 years. So Dale, if you could, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. All sorts of reasons to, uh, to be on the college newspaper. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. So uh, Dale, if we can start with, uh, with you and National Review. Uh, essentially, what is National Review and how is the journal different from the sort of norms and practices of other American media companies? Yeah, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about uh, the history of National Review and its founder and it's, it's kind of its role in American political dialogue. Just obviously, first, thanks to Mark, Ellie, and all you members of uh, Club of Pep for uh, reaching over here to the colonies for this evening's conversation. I, I did want to say, I, I know you're at the University of York. I had the pleasure taking a family holiday there once. Uh, we, we stayed a, a couple days up in the, um, the North York Moors in uh, Rosedale Abbey, if any of you know where that's at. And it was just hauntingly beautiful. And then I remember our trip in that area included a day up in Whitby. And there's these sketchy chairs that go up this cliff and it's described in the, uh, the novel Dracula, and you, we could just we could just envision this uh, vampire turned dog running up those steps. And uh, at any rate, it was a it was a wonderful area, and I hope to return there someday. So, uh, besides the history, I think I'll also tell you a little bit about the finances of uh, associated with an opinion journalism. Uh, Mark indicated that some of you may have a professional interest in that. Okay, so first National Review started as a weekly magazine back in 1955, post-World War II. Uh, This was a time where America lacked any coherent or respectable center of right uh, movement. National Review's founder was this young, brilliant and charismatic Yale graduate named William F. Buckley Jr. And it was uh, his mission to change that. So he assembled a group of top-notch writers and thinkers to uh, debate and uh, promote their opinions in an intelligent and compelling ways. So this famously uh, involved assembling a coalition of three groups. First, you had traditionalist conservatives with ideals of family, community, and virtue, kind of in the Burkean sense. Second were those of the classical liberal or libertarian strand celebrating constitutional order, freedom and creativity of limited government and uh, free market economics. Think F.A. Hayek for that angle there. And finally, and this was, this was a uh, the bind that tied these groups all together, there were those convicted for the need to fight authoritarianism, uh, primarily at the time, 
the threat of international communism and uh, the Soviet Union in particular. So the process of bringing these three together, this disparate groups and uh, often infighting, I might add, was called fusionism. And tending that coalition at its core was uh, National Review's mission and uh, contributed to the intellectual leadership of that in the uh, coming decades there. You know, in thinking about talking with folks from a different uh, part of the world, I, I was struck how political terminology varies around the globe. So interestingly, Buckley only adopted the title conservative from the then recent writings of Russell Kirk. Originally, Buckley preferred the term individualists in his first book, uh, God and Man at Yale. So it's just, it's, it's the term we got, but uh, that, it's uh, what we've all rallied around here, at least at National Review. Uh, before I go to National Review, Mark, I I'd be remiss not to celebrate the founder a bit. Uh, Buckley, he, he died 11 years ago, was a, uh, a remarkable man, um, extremely gifted in language, debate. Uh, he could be really nice, this could be really nicely sampled by watching interviews on his television program called Firing Line. It ran for like 33 years and something like 1500 episodes. So it's, it's out there. Uh, he wrote incessantly at syndicated column in National Review and other magazines. He wrote, I think, over 50 books, in, including spy novels. Uh, Stained Glass was my particular favorite of that genre. If anybody wants to pick one up, that's a good one. Buckley uh, famously ran once for mayor of New York City, always knowing that he'd lose, but making a good sport of it and needling the city's lefty political establishment at the time in the 60s there. Oh, there, there's the book. From the book. It's, it's a fantastic book. Anyway. So. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, he, he served as like an advisor to presidents and arguably helped align the movement necessary for the West to win the uh, Cold War. So just an incredible man. Uh, if any of the Club of Pep wants to dabble, I'd encourage you to watch some of those early 60s and 70s firing lines. They're, they're all on YouTube. Okay, so National Review. Uh, National Review is a journal of opinion, and that means it's never been saddled by the illusion of political neutrality. In theory, the, the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune here in the States are supposed to be unbiased in the reporting, but our magazine and, and now the website, which you know, has tens of millions of people watching it, reading it instead of tens of thousands who read the magazine, has always been unabashedly political, with moral and have an economic bias regarding the way, uh, the way things ought to be. So that's, that's the mission of National Review's writers to explore these ideas and to, uh, with the intention of convincing others or, or at least uh, informing the discussion. So obviously this mission still comes with responsibility of good journalism, which includes factual accuracy and uh, civility and debate. And I expect that's a, an area we'll explore a little more deeply in the coming hour, which naturally brings us to Donald Trump. Um, now, if there's one thing that our former president craves, it's attention. So I was reluctant to feed that beast too much tonight. But I, I, I thought the club would be interested to know that National Review took a strong editorial stance against candidate Trump five years ago when he was running for the Republican Party nomination. The uh, magazine's famous cover then, uh, it's infamous and often misquoted, I might add, by amongst the president's more ardent supporters was against Trump. Editorially, NR has routinely chastised the president through the years when that's been indicated uh, uh, most recently uh, rigorously for his selfish narrative about the stolen election and the horrible attempts to overturn 
the results by his uh, political pressures and other such nonsense. But that all said, the magazine has often had occasion to applaud the policies of the Trump administration and preferring them to alternatives that we might have otherwise uh, been presented. I'm sure many of the writers and editors voted for him or at least did not vote for Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton before. The take there is, is as a consequence, National Review's been both alternatively, alternately criticized for being completely anti-Trump by some, and then being his total apologist by others, which I believe is a credible indicator of our writers making judgments based on principles and ideals rather than some sort of tribal team alignment. And that uh, brings me, Mark, to the finances, which you'd asked about. Um, I understand that Buckley and his early supporters envisioned the magazine turning a profit in its, after its first few years. Uh, that never happened. Uh, indeed, NR has been dependent in part on donations by supporters ever since. So in America, at least, advertisers tend to avoid uh, controversial political content, especially that with a conservative flair. Um, print with subscription revenues long since receded. So today, NR and, and some others do well with digital subscriptions. That's where we try to get one to 3% of our audience to actually pay for the content. But the, uh, the math for us and for every other journal of of opinion uh, in America at any rate, it stinks and it like, likely always will. So that's just requires voluntary support, which at NR represents about a third of its revenue, interestingly, when you factor everything in. This is unlike your guardian in the UK, we do not have a giant trust fund to depend on or as the case of some other journals in the States, we don't have the one or two sugar daddies to write large checks as, as long as they remain interested uh, or alive. Our, at NR, we have a lot of significant and faithful donors, but our rank and file consists of thousands of supporters with the mode giver giving 50 bucks. We're doing a webathon right now and you can, give to, I'm sure there's a way for the currency to be uh, translated. But it works, uh, and I think it's actually, Mark and I talked about this before, uh, uh, represents a strength for our organization. There is a conservative beauty there. Um, you know, being supported by a wide and caring community of readers is ultimately preferable to the easy street of a supporting billionaire or being forced to live for uh, catchy clickbait and uh, advertising revenue. So at any rate, that's our math. Hopefully that gives you a better understanding of Van its history and its purpose. And I look forward to exploring further with uh, tonight's conversation, which means Mark, I should turn it over to you and the real journalists. Okay, you laid it out very well. Thank you. Thank you for that, Dale. And uh, so moving right on to the uh, discussion portion of, of uh, tonight's event. And uh, at this point, the audience can sort of go ahead and start directing questions into the Q&A. Uh, and Ellie will monitor those and, uh, and bring them up later in the Q&A section. Uh, but for the discussion, I'd like to first direct uh, a question back at you, Dale, and then open it up to Kevin and David. And uh, this is going to be a very sort of general question in uh, first the editorial opinion of National Review and in your own opinions, what responsibilities do journalists have within our modern political discourse and how well have they upheld those responsibilities before, during and now after the Trump era? You know, Mark, I appreciate you asking me. I think we should ask the real journalists. I'll, I'm just gonna turn it over to them there. Kevin, you wanna go first or should? Sure, um, always happy to uh, pull forth. Um, 
you know, I was a newspaper editor for a long time and I wasn't always in opinion journalism. I used to do just kind of, you know, regular newspaper journalism. And I grew up in newspapers in an era in which newspapers made a lot of money. Um, you know, I grew up in a small town in West Texas called Lubbock. Our local newspaper there ran about a 20% profit margin year after year, year after year for, for a long, long time. I edited a small group of suburban newspapers outside of Philadelphia. We made about a million dollars a month um, in, in free and clear profit. And that was um, most welcome by our shareholders. I didn't get to take home much of it myself, but, uh, but they certainly liked having it. And this had an interesting effect on newspapers because for most of the 20th century outside of New York and a couple of other big cities, most daily newspapers were either local monopolies or local semi-monopolies. And they were enormously influential. You know, I think about the case of Walter Annenberg, who um, some of you may know, um, he was our ambassador to the United Kingdom in the 1970s, but he was a publisher. He owned the Atlantic Monthly and uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer in essence and 17 and a bunch of other stuff. But where his money really came from was TV Guide, uh, which was a magazine that was started to put out TV listings in the 1960s and became the most read and most purchased publication in the United States, selling tens of millions of copies uh, a week. He's an interesting story. I'm kind of a, an, an Annenbergologist. His father was a gangster, essentially, who uh, went to prison and Walter took over the businesses uh, after that. So the Inquirer wasn't probably a huge part of his business, actually, or was fortune from, from TV, the most part. But if you asked him what he did, he would tell you he was the publisher of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And uh, because newspapers had a, just a gigantic cultural footprint at that point. And even if they weren't huge businesses, the way movie studios are huge businesses at that time or television networks are huge businesses, they were still pretty profitable businesses. So they could afford to have principals <laughs> in many ways. Uh, some of you uh, being in college right now are starting to learn that principals can be very expensive. And it's easier to have principals if you're uh, making a 20% profit margin than if you're losing three or 4% every year. So, uh, you know, the Inquirer back in the day stood up to uh, McCarthyism. It was a big advocate for the Marshall Plan. It could do things like that. Um, with the invention of the Internet, uh, daily journalism changed a lot. A lot of bad decision making happened in the uh, newspaper business, particularly in the early days of the Internet, when companies like Google started selling advertisements essentially on behalf of media properties. They were happy to outsource that to them. And what they started trying to do was just simply build the largest possible readership, uh, what I call the commodity eyeball version, and live off of the you know per-click revenue, which was a terrible way to do things, as it turns out. But it took them a long time to figure out how to sell subscriptions. Some of you may remember, Dale, you may remember that the New York Times actually tried to implement a subscription model, I guess, in the late 90s. And it very nearly put itself out of business uh, doing that. It's really the Wall Street Journal that first figured out at least among the big American newspapers, how to make that work. Um, but the reason I bring this up is because social change and economic change are the same thing. Uh, the decline in the institutional power of newspapers and the cultural footprint of newspapers happened right around the same time as the rise of social media, uh, which showed that you could build those same kinds of commodity eyeball audiences without having any kind of journalistic content. So we now have a press that is not just partisan, which we've had partisan newspapers for a long time. Uh, certainly in the UK, you have more openly partisan newspapers than we traditionally did. But we've got all sorts of American newspapers that's called the this and this Democrat and the that and that Republican because that's how newspapers used to operate. They were uh, party affiliates in some ways. It's not that our newspapers have become more partisan, it's they've become more tribalistic and they don't do basic journalism. They don't do good journalism. And you see that now, not just in newspapers, but across a, a range of publications where the business model really rewards, um, you know, pumping people up emotionally, uh, getting them excited about things, starting sort of artificial fights, um, selling people hysteria, this permanent state of emergency that we always find ourselves in. And there's not as nearly as much juice in doing a sort of regular good journalism. And I know this from my own work, where I'll go out and spend two weeks reporting a story and... Uh, write up a 4,000 word, 5,000 word piece on some, I think anyway, interesting and important uh, social subject and people will read it and it'll do fine. But, you know, I write kind of one angry thing that takes me 20 minutes because I see something in the New York Times that pisses me off that day. And you know, in a million people will read that. Um, 
I think the the most read thing I've ever written for National Review was a short little piece making fun of Anthony Scaramucci and his kind of hilarious, uh, profane tirade to that uh, reporter was from New York Magazine, I guess. And I, it probably took me 20 minutes to write that. It was essentially a, an, an overblown corner post and millions of people read it um, for whatever reason, because it was funny, kind of mean, kind of harsh. Um, there wasn't any real journalism in it. I mean, it was a decent piece of writing, I suppose, but um, the reward structure does not push journalists in the right direction right now. And that is something that institutions are going to have to address. National Review is an institution that I think is trying to address that. Um, but it's going to have to be the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, and the Associated Press, and uh, and television networks are going to have to really start figuring out that um, there is an audience for that. You can sell it, but it's not as easy an audience or as um, high volume an audience as other kinds of journalism. And... Um, so essentially, there's a, there's a problem, I think, in work ethic. There's a problem in institutional management. Uh, media companies still tend to be run by non-journalists. Uh, most of the people in charge of the big American newspaper companies are people who came up through the advertising side or through circulation and operations, things like that. Those are all important things. But um, when you've got accountants in charge of uh, something that's essentially an editorial product, you're not going to get the best uh, kind of journalism. So I think we've got a perverse incentive structure that has to be addressed. I think the recent kind of hysterical populist nature of our politics is really more a reflection of what's going on in the media than a cause of it. It's the symbiotic relationship with one area off another hysteria. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the reward, the perverse incentives and re reward structure. I uh, grew up in New York, which is you know a little bit different. We had a ton of big newspapers and the newspaper you got told said a lot about your family where your union family you got the daily news you know if you're conservative maybe you get the new york post certain times um newsday new york times you know, just huge newspapers with million dollar uh, circulation you know, million circulation um so i love newspapers growing up they meant a lot where i grew up they they said a lot about you so i finally got to work at a newspaper uh, my first job at the denver post at a real paper was in 2002 and uh, that was sort of, I think the newsroom had around 250 reporters, which is quite a bit. And uh, I think our circulation was around 450,000 in a city of Denver, which is not a huge city, it's a mid-sized city. Um, we were important, <laughs> reporters were important and I was a columnist there. And, and I was sort of important um, in that I could uh, give voice to, for conservatives. I was sort of the token at that paper. Um, but I saw it all fall apart every year. Our newsroom shrunk from then on. Um, there was quite a bit of resistance to, to modernizing the way uh, we, we dispense news, meaning the online product and blogs and things that mattered in those days. Um, but they soon noticed as well. I think now, I would just quickly, now there I think are 11 staffers at the Denver Post and there was only one newspaper in that town. It used to be the Rocky Mountain News as well. Um, so their, their business is completely decimated. Maybe, I don't know what they do now. Um, so for me, that was a disaster. I always wanted to work at newspapers. I loved being there. I still think of myself as a, as a, as a newspaper columnist, not any sort of intellectual or anything like that. Um, and, uh, so the destruction of newspapers to me is, is really a tragedy. And when I view newspaper, when I look at the New York times or Washington post today, I don't really think of them as the, in the way I thought of the daily news or the New York post growing up. I think of them as, you know, just online contemporary online sites that have a lot of clickbait. Um, though I think, though I'm a huge critic of, of, of political media, I think newspapers still do quite some good work. Um, that others can't do. I, what, what I think conservatives often forget is that journalism is super expensive. Um, you need, I, I was at the Denver Post, we, we won a Pulitzer, we had two reporters working on one story for an entire year. Sometimes those stories don't work out, sometimes they're, you know, they're, they're dead end. So that's a lot of money and most people who run smaller sites like conservative magazines, like even, you know, we, we can't afford that kind of reporting. So it's, it's sort of shameful the way things have gone in a way because you don't have journal, you don't have people with journalistic integrity working on long-term projects that matter anymore, but or very rarely. So for me, 
that's just been a tragedy. And um, I can't really think of a newspaper I, 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 other than the Wall Street Journal, perhaps, that I really respect anymore. And uh, I think the Times does a great job outside of the national political beat. Like right. New York Times on New York, regional stuff, the culture stuff, I still think is really very good. My focus is politics. So I, I, I realize when I get the New York Times Magazine or, you know, there's some sort of feature story, I think they do can do a good job in other ways. But, uh, and you were a, a theater critic, right? So you're probably interested in that sort of thing more than I am. And sports reporting, I think, has always been good. I, I used to work in sports, but New York Post is fantastic. And, you know, um, that's not as... Uh, that's not as serious a job, frankly, and it's not as important a job as political reporting. And whereas I think that these papers were always biased, everyone knew if they picked up the New York Times and they were reading, say, about Israel or some conservative, you know, Ronald Reagan, whatever it was when I was growing up, that you'd have to read it through a certain prism to synthesize what they were saying and know what they really meant, you know, the euphemisms, everything else. Whereas now I feel like most reporters are actually activists and there, there's a difference between bias and activism and we see it constantly. But then the complete erosion of journalistic integrity, we saw it the other day where the Washington Post made a correction on a quote from Donald Trump that never existed that was corroborated by a bunch of newspapers somehow from one source. Now, even when I was a Metro columnist, I had to get at least two sources and even then, editors would rarely let me use anonymous sources, especially if it was any kind of scoop. Um, I would have to have an incredibly good reason for that. And now there are just stories constantly with one anonymous source or, or you know, who even knows? Because there's not much transparency ever, and uh, we can't really trust the integrity of many of the editors. So, so I guess that's what I want to say. I mean, I just feel like it's been a tragedy for someone who grew up in newspapers and loved them so much um, to see what's happened. I obviously some of that is because of technology and the and there's nothing you can do about that. But a lot of it, I think, was just short-sightedness of the people who ran big papers, especially in, in mid-sized cities that that have no longer have them. And uh and I think many have learned now the you know the subscription-based model I think is working for many people now, but uh they did not they did not really uh you know they were not innovative at all in the early days or in the early days of the internet. Yeah, all those mid-sized papers are going to get wiped out. I mean, a lot of the real big papers will do fine. Small, hyper-local news sites will do okay, too, because no one else is covering the school board in your small town. But everything in the middle is going to get just uh, massacred. Um, you know, I've never, um, I suppose I should point this out, I've never had a problem with bias as such. I don't care if a, if a publication has a point of view. I mean, the real problem isn't bias. The real problem is bad journalism. And there's a difference. It's perfectly it's perfectly possible for someone like me who has a conservative point of view to go out and cover a story or write a column about something and get the facts right, uh, treat people fairly, don't distort uh, what happened or what people said, uh, present things in a way that is intellectually honest. Um, this is not an impossible thing to do. Um, and, and in fact, people did that for a long time and some people still do it pretty well. Uh, the problem is really the sort of sloppy, lazy, um, incompetent journalism and, and what I was mentioning earlier, that there aren't a lot of strong incentives to do better journalism. No, I agree. I think that being honest about your worldview actually makes it more interesting to read quite often. And every intelligent or curious person has a worldview. And why should we pretend they don't? So I, I totally agree with that. I don't think bias was the problem as much as, as you say, bad journalism, which is was sort of accelerated under Donald Trump, but probably was happening before. But I think that Trump gave them a license to basically because in their fight against evil and for democracy means that you don't have to have two sources anymore, basically. So um, I think that that was a big problem. And judging from what's been going on since then, I don't think that it's going to be rectified yeah. anytime soon. If we could bring the discussion a little bit uh, closer to Trump, uh, we, uh, in sort of planning all of this, uh, there was that sort of idea of let's not bring Trump in too much, but it seems like, now is a is a natural time to bring the former president in, and uh, in a little discussion of uh, polarity and the political polarity we see in American media today. How far can it be attributed to candidate and President Trump? And uh, is the political polarity we see in America today reflected in media and news, the former president's legacy? Part of it, sure. I mean, the interesting thing about Trump is that he didn't come from the world of politics, he came from the world of celebrity. 
And as a cultural force, celebrity is a lot more powerful than politics. And the kind of minor celebrity that people have in politics, you know, I'm on Fox News, I'm on MSNBC, I used to be somebody's chief of staff, is just nothing compared to the power of actual celebrity. Um, that's why I kind of sometimes, you know, people um, will write these pieces, who cares what Taylor Swift thinks about the election? Well, maybe we shouldn't care, but it actually matters. Um, you know, Taylor Swift has the ability to move policy more than I do, certainly, <laughs> more than everyone at National Review put together, I imagine, probably more than everyone working in opinion journalism in the United States put together does, uh, to be honest. So um, coming from the world of celebrity, what he did was he sort of supercharged a tendency that was already there. Uh, something I alluded to earlier, we have a, a tendency both in media and politics to act as though we're always in a constant state of emergency. Uh, because it's good for uh, making a more competitive narrative. So it's it's happier for the media. It's happier as a political campaign issue, especially if you're in opposition, to be in a state of permanent emergency or semi-emergency. Uh, because if you're in a state of emergency, you can discard norms, and demonize your opponents, do all that sort of stuff. And that stuff's all great for business if you're in media, uh, if, you're, if you're running a uh, political campaign. The thing about Trump, of course, was that um, he's someone who actually really did violate kind of basic norms of American politics um, throughout his presidency, throughout his campaign, and then certainly toward the end with what was in my attempt, in my view, an attempt to overturn the election through illegal and unconstitutional means, which would have amounted to a coup. So I think he was a serious and real threat to um, the American civil order and when you've got a, an opposition that already is inclined to treat things as a state of emergency and inclined toward hysteria, giving them a reasonably good uh, excuse for it is going to make things a lot worse. So um, some of this, of course, was opportunism, as I think David alluded to uh, earlier. There were um, exaggerations, distortions, all these things that, that happen in, in a situation like this. But um, I think that he presented an actual real challenge to American institutions and that reaction to him was an overreaction, but it wasn't a reaction to nothing. Well, I, um, I think that, uh, you know, Donald Trump, I think was morally and, uh, you know, intellectually unfit to be president. Um, but then as his presidency went on, the other side acted morally and, and, and intellectually unfit to, to have their roles as well. So I was in a kind of a tough spot because Donald Trump would actually do things I liked occasionally and then ruin it by speaking. Um, so, but it definitely blew everything up. The, the, the one thing he did, I think that was good was sort of blow the lid off of a lot of, I call it corruption, you know, media corruption, institutional corruption. Um, he was no better but he was no better. He was, you know, he was he was in many ways aesthetically for you know democratic institutions all that bad, but or worse. But he also, I think, helped a lot of see, people see how hypocritical uh, and kind of insane some people who were running our institutions in the past, the CIA, the FBI, things like that, were as well. So it was a very complicated situation, I think, as a journalist. Um, he deserved a lot of the anger that was directed towards him, but sometimes I believe that that anger um, and criticism obscured other other things that that media should be pay, should have been paying attention to. So I guess I don't even know if I'm answering your question, but it was a complicated time that I'm glad is over. Is my final answer? <laughs> yeah, but I think that the, the particular character of his sort of celebrity is really the, the important variable there. You know, if Ted Cruz had been elected and had decided to run a demagogic populist campaign and uh, behaved in office the way Trump had behaved in office, which it's hard to imagine Ted Cruz doing, but just for the purpose of our thought experiment, it wouldn't have resonated the same way. It wouldn't have had the same effects uh, because it's, it, it's sort of a question of volume, I guess, that um, just the cultural footprint of a celebrity like Trump, and he's actually was still sort of a minor celebrity. If you got a real, real celebrity into politics, you know, with George Clooney or, or something like that, um, it would um, it would be an even bigger version of that same phenomenon. But uh, we have a, a, a weird um, relationship. We've always had a weird relationship with celebrity. We have a particularly weird one right now um, in the age of social media because we've had a sort of democratization of celebrity culture. 
where you've got now instead of maybe a few hundred people in the celebrity business or maybe a couple of thousand people in the celebrity business, if you define it very broadly, we've got millions and millions of people, tens of millions of people who are essentially in the business of being celebrities or trying to be celebrities, whether Instagram influencers, the uh, you know Twitter accounts that have 200,000, 300,000 followers that don't ever actually produce any useful content, but they're just kind of you know trollish, that sort of thing. Um, you know, you can build just enormous audiences on Facebook and things like that. So we've seen um, that celebrity culture sort of colonize our political culture and colonize our media culture. And um, it's useful in one way in that I think this is in many ways a golden age uh, for readers because you've got immediate access to a lot of stuff. And uh, even though the average quality of journalism has probably gone down a lot, the volume's gone up a lot too. So there's a lot of good stuff out there to read, um, both in the United States and, and uh, from producers abroad. And it's pretty easy to get to. And it's also in some ways amplified the, the power of media. Um, there were maybe, you know, in the 1950s, 1960s, eh, one or two newspaper columnists who, who had the sort of power that maybe a Paul Krugman does or even a George Will does. Uh, but now there is a larger group of people who can really move the conversation politically. Um, you don't have just, you know, one Walter Cronkite out there who kind of sets the bounds for where the discussion goes. So I think that has been productive in some ways and, and brings up some interesting responsibilities if we can get people to exercise that power in a responsible and intelligent way, which I don't have extraordinarily high hopes for, I'm afraid. And the least the least popular thing I write, or least popular type of column I write, is when I lecture young people about how great their lives are and the access that they have to information and things like yeah. that. Because I actually love that there I can just turn a computer on and I have this sort of hyper specific site where I can, you know, read about whatever I want. Whereas, as you mentioned, you know, when we were when I was young, you know, you get Time Magazine and you just like take what you got. It wasn't. You know, there wasn't it's just a vast amount of information. It's just you have a supercomputer in your pocket, you know, and people constantly are complaining about it. But um, but with that democratized celebrity, as you mentioned, comes a lot of, you know, garbage and uh, misinformation and uh, disinformation and, uh, you know, just idiocracy. And um, that that I used to think wasn't that important. But the older I get, the more corrosive I think that stuff is for for just this us as citizens and as for our debate and for, for discourse and all that. So, but I don't have any answers to, to how to improve any of that. I should you use a word, by the way, that's very important to me, which is idiocracy. And whenever that comes up, I just, I like to point out that when that movie came out originally, I wrote a review of it. It was very critical. And I said it was too harsh and it was too cynical. It took too low a view of people. And I eventually sent Mike Judge a letter uh, in which I, I now refer to him as the prophet Mike Judge uh, because it was not nearly cynical enough and not nearly harsh enough and far, far too generous to, to people. I should just uh, observe outside of the uh, qualitative aspects of the, the Trump's impact on media, there's this cynical world where his, his departure is real hit financially, not just to the conservative side, but to media in general. The, uh, the, the New York Times and um, CNN and, and such, that they, at least financially, all really miss him because churn, cynically, as Kevin observed at the beginning, is, is the name of the game today. And uh, a uh, out of power and deplatformed Donald Trump has driven down traffic for everybody. Yeah. Well, and a lot of media properties do better in opposition. National Review always has. You know, our circulation goes up when you've got Barack Obama in the White House or Bill Clinton in the White House, uh, tends to taper off some when you've got a Republican. Um, opposition is a lot easier. It's easier in, in media and it's easier in politics. Because even if you like a politician, he's going to do something stupid. You know, he's going to make some sort of corrupt bargain. He's going to sell out on some point or another. So it's easy to find stuff uh, to complain about. It's easy to uh, pick fights. It's easy to personalize things. Um, but trying to explain to people, even if you've got a particular ideological or philosophical point of view in an intelligent and enlightened way, what's actually going on in the world, here's how you should understand this one thing, is much more difficult, I think. 
And, you know, uh, Kevin definitely doesn't have this problem, and I hope I don't. You know, sometimes you have to go after your own. And I think that I notice less and less of that from columnists, meaning yeah. your own, the right, left, you know. And um, I have, you know, I, maybe it's because of our journalism background, honestly, more than a lot of people in, in conservative media come from a sort of movement, think tanky background, things of that nature, where um, I, I, you know, I just think that uh, conservatives going after their own it gives them more credibility. And I think that they're more prone to do it quite often than left-wing media, certainly than the partisan media that, that, that resides, let's say at the Washington Post, you know, opinion page or et cetera. Yeah, I'm coming after you, David. You see, I, I want people to come after me. I mean, a lot of times you're, um, what's it called, ratioed on Twitter and everyone's like, oh, you got ratioed. I live to be ratioed. I think that you want people to be mad at you in this business, right? I mean, you want to make you want to make sincere arguments and, and you don't want to, you know, just say things to be, to be contrarian, but uh, you do want people to be mad at you and you want to debate. And there's less and less of that on Twitter. I used to remember on Twitter, I would debate with leftists all the time. And now it seems like we're all in our own bubbles. People do flybys and insult you or whatever, but there is very rarely substantive debate uh, in the way that I think just was just a lot of fun. You mentioned firing line before. Um, it's an amazing show because Buckley brought on people he completely, you know, he had Chomsky on or whoever completely disagreed with, and they had incredibly interesting conversations. I grew up watching Crossfire when they had Pat Buchanan on there, and uh, mm. I guess Kinsley was on there as well. And that was a show that I just, I loved to watch it, even as a kid, you know, it was just interesting. And I can't think of any, and maybe it exists, that sort of show or debate going on right now anymore. You could tell that uh, Firing Line and the McLaughlin group had a really, really big cultural footprint because they were satirized. You know, only important things get effectively satirized. Um, I don't think there's, you know, I, I think of the uh, Bill Buckley impersonation in uh, Aladdin. Yeah. There's, there's no, you know, sort of working pundit that that's going to happen to now. Uh, but when that came out, everyone got it. You know, everyone sort of knew uh, what the joke was. Yeah, our generation might be a little bit uh, a little bit too uh, too young to have remembered that. But after our conversation, what was it? Maybe a month and a half ago, uh, Dale, I did go away and watch that uh, Muhammad Ali Buckley interview. Yeah, it, was and it was yeah, it was incredible that he did bring on individuals which he vehemently disagreed with. And I think you mentioned that the only person he wouldn't debate is a is a communist. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there, but uh, but that was that was the line that he, that he wouldn't cross. Anything else was uh, fair game, and I think that moves us uh, well on to our uh, Q and A session here. So the uh, the we have some questions already in the um, in the chat that uh, Ellie will be uh, going through, but we also have some moderated questions that were submitted through a Google Doc beforehand, and we'll sort of start there and ping back and forth here. This first one comes from Jack Blexley, and uh, he uh, asks uh, if the FCC Fairness Doctrine, uh, after it was scrapped in 1987 under the Reagan administration, if that was brought back, would it help to reinstate some journalistic responsibility in television media or, or, or not? No, the main effect of, of the Fairness Doctrine was to keep commentary off of television entirely. Um, so there was this kind of accountants mentality, minute counting, second counting uh, thing that went along with that as though as though there were really only two political flavors in the world and you could just balance them balance them off one another, which you know you could have just a panel of national review people on a panel and get 10 different opinions about things, even if you only had five panelists. And um, so the fairness doctrine is um, not particularly useful that way. Also its reach, would no longer be very big because it only applies to uh, broadcast network television, um, whereas there's no way to apply it to cable because they don't have uh, jurisdiction there. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything uh, Kevin just said. It's just, but even the idea of it uh, annoys me. The word fairness even annoys me. So, um, you know, I wouldn't even want to normalize something like that. And I don't think it would help at all. I think we need a smartness doctrine. You know, we should have just a. A panel of people that should just be able to veto people and say, you are too stupid to be on television anymore. Sorry. There's, there's just so many voices and so many channels for communication now that the idea that uh, even if you had the legal authority that you could in any appropriate way administer, et cetera, it, it's, a, it's a nightmare. And, and I, I think 
chilling to free speech. Yeah, I don't want to submit these people to a, you know, a, a balance test. I want to submit them to a spelling test. <laughs> Getting rid of it actually was, if I, I believe I'm right, was pretty important in allowing conservative radio to bloom. So, that, I mean, I, you know, I didn't end up being a huge fan of it, but when I was a kid, Rush Limbaugh, for instance, was on New York radio, it actually was kind of jarring to hear someone mocking liberalism in that way. And hmm. it kind of, I think, had a bigger impact, probably, frankly, than, you know, it, it was sort of a, that celebrity impact as well with Rush Limbaugh. It was very entertaining. So, you know, that, I guess that was something to, you know, important. Well, I think that's another example of economic changes really driving the 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 commercial the uh, cultural changes in some way because what really made rush and uh talk radio possible was the commercial collapse of am radio and you know am airwave time became pretty close to free and you could put just whatever you wanted on there he did the world a favor actually uh because there's a lot of people out there who owned am broadcast licenses that had a useless commodity on their hands they couldn't sell and he made those people a lot of money we have uh, some some more questions coming in here on the uh, just the, the the live Q and A here. If Ellie, you want to take over? Um. Yeah. Sure. I think I might start with uh, this question on the chat from Tom McCord, which is for David specifically. Um. Why do you think bias has turned into activism amongst journalists? Well, um, because. You know, there are a few reasons for that. I mean, it, just looking at J school, the big journalism professors and how they talk about journalism, for instance, it seems to me that this starts pretty early um, in that, I, I don't know, maybe there's just a politicization of, 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 of how you learn about journalism to begin with. Just, I find it, I don't even mind bias again, I just, the lack of skepticism, you know, if you, for instance, hear a perfect story and a perfect quote, any good journalist would immediately say, this is, you know, this is just not true, probably, right? But you don't get that today. So I don't know what the reasons are behind it. I think Donald Trump had a lot to do with it, where journalists felt that they were on a crusade to save democracy from Donald Trump, and that gave them license to essentially do whatever they wanted in that, um, in that cause. But I mean, I, I don't have an answer for that. I know that when I was at a paper, you know, almost everyone was a liberal at that paper, but they were also journalists and there was a certain personality that thrived there that was a skeptic, that was, you know, aggressive and that wanted to be factually accurate, even if they, uh, you know, had a bias. And I just don't see that anymore. Why that's happened, I don't know. Maybe Kevin has a better answer on that. No, I think that's a pretty good answer. Okay. We well, and the other thing is, I mean, activist, activism is easier than journalism. You know, if you want to be a media activist, what you do is you pick a group of people. This is going to be the group of people you care about. This is your thing, um, whether it's, you know, um, ethnic or racial minority or sexual minority or some other uh, group. It's going to be you're going to be their advocate. And that's what you do is you just find ways to work that into the conversation. You're like that horrible person at a dinner party who can only talk about one thing. And no matter what the conversation naturally turns to, it always gets dragged back to whatever the one thing they care about is. And uh, there's not a lot of journalism in that. You know, if you look at, um, you know, you look at the New York Times columnist lineup and the folks there who are just essentially activists with a column, is there ever anything interesting in what they write? I mean, not that I can think of. Maybe part of that is, and you know, just from my own experiences, I started out working at the AP overnight, writing cut lines and headlines, all, you know, all yeah. night, which was a terrible, terrible job. But you know, then I worked my way up to being a columnist over a number of years. I feel like people are given a voice in the paper relatively quickly now, very relatively young. It's not to say young people aren't great writers or they don't have interesting things to say, sometimes they're more interesting than the older columnists. It's to say that they don't really have a journalistic background when they're doing it. So they sound to me more like activists than people trying to get at the truth or to have a good faith debate with other people. Yeah, I, I get a lot of young people I talk to who want to uh, work in media and they want to be opinion writers. You know, I want to go change the world. And I tell them, you know, go cover the police department in Chicago for a couple of years and figure out how to write a news story and figure out how to actually do some journalism and then learn something and come back when, give us your opinions when you know something and when you have something to write about. I've never wanted to change the world. 
I've never thought like that as a journalist ever. I almost don't even. That's really why you're a conservative, David. We don't want to change the world. Like the world. I don't, even know, I don't even know if I want to change people's minds that much. Frankly, I just want to have a good argument and hopefully write a good column. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm, you know, the greatest writer. Kevin is one of my favorites, but. I also have noticed that the craft of writing has sort of gone out the window. And that's been since the blogging age where people just sort of spit out everything they have to say in this you know, long form bloggish post and where, where they're not very funny and they're not very interesting to read. You know, I think you need to be a good read to be a good columnist. And I don't, you know, I think that's missing as well quite often. Yeah, I think I've changed one person's mind about something that I know of. <laughs> that's it. Like in the whole time I've been doing this, it was uh, Rick Unger who was anti-fracking and I changed his mind about it. If we can uh, bring in another question from uh, Alexander Hornstein. Uh, he asks, is the current Republican party effectively Trump's party? Uh, if not, which individuals better represent the Republican party and its values? And do any of them stand a chance winning the 2024 Repub Republican primary if Trump does decide to run? I don't, I don't think it's his party. I mean, but he has a big presence in the party. Um, I think someone like the only person I can think of right now that might be able to bring the populist Trump people to the sort of more Reagan style conservatives would be maybe Ron DeSantis in Florida. I don't know though. I've, I've I thought Giuliani would be a great candidate years ago, and others who completely failed. So you never know is how people are going to react. I thought Trump would lose in the primaries. I thought he'd lose in the general. I never thought he'd be president. So I'm not great on this question. Um, I do feel more and more out of step with sort of the more popular populist economic kind of conservatism that's going on, very out of step. In fact, for me, markets are an incredibly important part of why I'm a conservative and, and, and the way uh, people talk about markets these days is on the right is off-putting to me. But, uh, you know, there's got to be a way to build a consensus. You're talking about the leftist country, not that there are 9 million parties, I think the Republicans probably do pretty well in the next few elections. Yeah, I think the Republican Party is unlike the Democratic Party in that it can only think about one thing at a time, and it's still thinking about Donald Trump. So um, it'll continue to be his party until it's somebody else's, until someone comes along and pushes him out of the conversation and establishes themselves as the, um, you know, dominant figure in the imagination of Republicans, but I can't really see anyone off the top of my head who would uh, be likely to do that. Um, you know, there are two kinds of Republicans, essentially. They're the ones I like and the ones I expect to be influential, and none of them are the same people. So structurally, Mark, the uh, the way it works with the, the parties, especially the Republican Party, is whoever was the sitting president names and appoints uh, all the national system. So, so that lives after Donald Trump. These are Trump-oriented people running the, the national RNC. It's interesting on the state level, obviously it can vary by state, but uh, I was amused to be at an event about a year ago and it was this rah, 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 Trump mindset of, of people observing that they were the outsiders and they were taking it to the Republican party. This is, I've lived in the state of Ohio. And at, at some point somebody had a show of hands. So, so how many of you are uh, Republican district reps for like the, the board that runs the state party? And enough people in that room held up their hands that they would have been a majority of, of the Ohio thing. So, so they were all the people on the outs, but the truth of the matter is, at least at that point in time, they were the, the people in control. But I, I think that's just going to change over time with the, the new leaders, the new flavors, and I, I'm personally skeptical that we're going to see Donald Trump here in four years. It, you touched on something, Dale, that I know I bore everyone with, but I think it's important, is that this um, insurgents versus the establishment rhetoric and narrative in the Republican Party is really destructive, and it's really cynically deployed. Um, years ago, it was during the, um, was the 2012 convention, I remember I was at a, at a dinner with a guy who was going on and on about, you know, how he was anti-establishment, and the establishment hates me, and the establishment's always been in opposition to me, and I'm such an outsider. But you're the chairman of the California Republican Party, buddy. I mean, granted, it's not the most important Republican Party, 
in the country, but you're the chairman of the party. If there is such a thing as the establishment, it's you. Well, don't you, you probably get this a lot. You know, people always um, say, you know, you and your Georgetown cocktail parties and, you yes. know, you know, that's not my life at all. And I'm sure it's not Kevin's life. So I don't, you know, because people sometimes call us conservative ink or whatever it is. And I've just, I don't feel like I am that way at all. Um, and especially when it's coming from folks who have been part of the Republican activist class forever and have just recently become big Trump fans. You know, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to be accused of. Yeah, you know, the, the Claremont people recently have been pretty funny about that. Like, you know, we're, we're against the establishment. You're Bill Bennett's employer. Come on. All right, I think we have uh, time for a couple more questions here. Uh, if uh, Ali, is there one in the Q&A Q session, section that's uh, speaking to you? Um, there are a lot of great questions in the Q&A section, actually. I think a few of them we have touched on already, um, but I might go to this one from um, Tom Sellers. Do you believe that writers and reporters push their own opinions or are they following the paper's political lines, especially when it comes to pieces pushing radical views? And obviously, I think um, you have established quite well with it. Um, the New Republic writers are fairly independent in their ideas, but maybe this question is more sort of in journal, in, in general, in relation to other journals or newspapers. I think that um, younger reporters and columnists right now have a lot more leeway than they ever have in the past, uh, simply because, as I think we've seen at the New York Times and the Atlantic and a lot of places like that, the middle-aged guys who are in positions of authority are terrified of their 20-something-year-old employees. Um, they're afraid they're going to get accused of some sort of cultural transgression that they don't understand, that they're going to not use the right word for something or not have exactly the right nuanced opinion on something, and they're going to get bounced out. So um, I think if you were um, you know, sort of a young radical uh, with a particular agenda at the New York Times right now, you have a lot of freedom which you want than uh, you would have 20 years ago. So I think that particularly at the big uh, old media companies, the editors and publishers ability to enforce a party line, I think is really pretty limited. Yeah, I think that's true. But on the other hand, you know, if someone offered me and no one has come to me to give me a column at the New York Times or something like that, I probably in the, you know, 10 years ago, I would have jumped at something like that. And today, I'm not sure I'd want to do that. I don't feel like I'd be able to say what I want without um, feeling tremendous amounts of pressure. Um, I felt pressure even being a conservative columnist, columnist at the Denver Post, um, though I did what I wanted. But, you know, no one ever told me what to write. No one's ever told me told me what to say. Um, but I think there are people who, who know what they're, you know, what they, they can say. And those are the people who are hired these days. I, I just don't believe that I would have the freedom to say what I wanted on the pages of the New York Times or Washington Post, even editorial page. Yeah, I think it's a good point, David, that the people who have genuinely non-conforming opinions um, don't run into having fights with their editors at the New York Times because they never get hired in the first place. You know, if you're not right. within a certain political band, um, then that's not going to happen. I remember uh, getting quizzed about my, you know, party affiliation when I was applying for a job on the copy desk in the sports department at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And, and um, I actually am fairly confident that's why I didn't get the job. <laughs> I, I uh, they asked me when I was I was going to work at the USA Today years ago, and they asked me what my opinion was on Iraq or something like that. I think I gave the wrong answer as well, though. Maybe I'm just making excuses for myself. Yeah. We have a uh, another question here, and this was uh, submitted anonymously, but I think it's a very good question. Um, it's a, what steps can journalists take today take to ensure that they uphold journalistic responsibility? And I'd add to that, uh, not just sort of you guys as individual journalists, but sort of reestablishing a, uh, a respect for uh, the sort of journalism that we've been talking about here. And you've been mentioning tonight, the, the journalism of going to work for a, a, what was Kevin's example, the, um, in, in, uh, in Chicago and, uh, and really getting some experience before sort of trying to change the world. 
Uh, is there a way back? Sure. I mean, I think it's a question that essentially answers itself. If you're someone who's walking around thinking, how do I be a good, responsible journalist? You're going to do good, responsible journalism. Uh, the problem is people who don't want to do good, responsible journalism, who want to be political activists one kind, they want to be you know, sort of media hitmen, that sort of thing. So some of it's learning, you know, basic practices, um, like, you know, understanding that people will lie to you sometimes and you have to verify things or that different people will have different recollections of things or that people will tell you things uh, for particular reasons because they have their own agendas. So you have to learn how to um, be good at what it is you do. But if you're someone who actually is interested in doing that, then that's really half the battle. And the main problem is that most people in media are not interested in doing good journalism. They're interested in being celebrities and getting paid. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And also, I, I think you have to view yourself in a way as the opposition to power, no matter who's in yes. power, you know, if you're a journalist, the local police chief, whoever it is, like, when I was doing local reporting, quite often, people would try to butter me up or, you know, take me out to lunch or whatever it was. Fortunately, I'm not that friendly. And I don't really care that much to have friends like that. And I'm not saying that that makes I'm just built like that. And I think other journalists are as well. But some people love to be in the back room and love to be in close proximity to people who are powerful, and they don't make good journalists, I don't think. They usually end up working for the politicians. So many journalists go and work for politicians, and those were usually not the good journalists. So um, I think just viewing yourself as, up, you know, you can have an opinion. I, I'm conservative, but I, but I don't particularly like conservative uh, politicians either. So I think that that's a good way to look at the world, at least for me it is. Yeah, that proximity to power can be really, really seductive to a certain kind of person. You know, if you, um, the president calls you to tell you he read your column and he thought it was interesting, some people really, really thrive on that sort of thing. Some people think, eh, I don't trust you. But, um, and those people are better journalists, I think. Too. I interviewed Trump one time uh, when I was at Human Events, which was a conservative site. I guess it still exists to some extent. And uh, he had no clue what he was talking about. He was a complete idiot about, uh, I forgot what the topic was, but, um, so that's why I just couldn't believe the American people would elect someone like that. Um, not that if you're smart, you're good, but I think there's a certain level of uh, knowledge and intelligence that you need to be president. My, 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 my threshold is you have to be like one step smarter than me. Whatever that is, then I can vote for you. If you're below that, it's, it's trouble. So, and he, he was not. Um, but I can see that, you know, he was, he sort of tried to butter me up as well. And I could see how people might, you know, fall for that. And, um, you know, some people are quite charming. Barack Obama seemed like he was a quite charming man, and it would be easy to be to fall into that with him more than Trump. And there's a reason people are good at politics, right? Because they're good at manipulating people, and they're good at being charming, and good at being ingratiating, and um, good at flattering people. So you have to um, keep that in mind when you're dealing with them. Just uh, quickly before we get on to one last question uh, over from uh, from Ellie. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, have you received that that call from uh, either uh, Obama or Trump, uh, who who read your article and found it uh, found it to be interesting or good? Um, no, not from Trump or Obama. You know, some senators sometimes have said some nice things. Or um, when I was in Denver, Bill Owens, who was the the um, the governor there at the time, it was actually at presidential aspirations would always call me up, but, but he was a fraud. So, um, and you could tell that immediately uh, by the way he acted and he turned out, you know, he, he was pretty terrible. So I was happy about that, but no, no president's going to call me. I'm not, <laughs> I don't think I'm that important. Our, our editor in chief got a call last week from, uh, or two weeks ago from Donald Trump. Uh, mm. he'll, he'll pop out periodically and want to, uh, push some buttons. Yeah, I heard he calls journalists quite quite often um, to praise them. Sometimes he makes up names and pretends to be someone else. <laughs> yeah, right. So he's, he's quite <laughs> active on that guy. front. <laughs> Ellie, yeah, you can, uh, do we have any, uh, any more questions there in the Q&A? Um, yeah, we do have a couple actually, and I've just got a new one, but I think, I think a nice one, um, 
maybe to fit in the sort of tail end of this discussion that has been briefly touched on, I think, by Kevin, but maybe we could have some more detail on, um, is uh, do you think that online articles are a sustainable platform for the future of journalism? Do I think online articles are a sustainable platform? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think they'll be pretty much the only form of, of journalism probably at some point. Print is very, very expensive. Um, it costs a lot of money to print stuff and get it to people. And it costs a lot, a lot of money to print stuff and get it to people quickly. Um, when I was in the daily newspaper business, I suppose printing and circulation must have been 70% of our expenditures, something like that. Uh, costs uh, costs a lot of money to do that. A lot easier to put stuff up on a uh, on a website. And Dale, of course, who lives National Review's uh, financials, uh, knows how expensive it is to print and mail stuff, even um, the more leisurely pace of uh, fortnightly publishing. So, um, yeah, but I think the um, the real future is in um, online articles that are written and reported and edited to the standards that we would expect from print or that we would expect from print at its best. Yeah, we have, we have no choice. That's the technology we've been dealt. And uh, I think they'll actually be probably be markets for, you know, good writing, good reporting and markets for sort of clickbaity stuff and all these things will exist at the same time. And maybe people will, as they get older, jump from one to the next and 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 have different interests but there's no we have no choice the print you know print is almost dead i think there's an encouraging world we talk i talked about it up front about uh digital subscriptions we're increasingly seeing people say no i want something curated that meets the, the standards of quality that uh kevin alluded to and i'm willing to pay and and i, I think that's um that's across generations and it's going to ultimately reach an equilibrium that is wiser than the uh, kind of the train wreck that uh, Kevin described of newspapers took at the first, the first pass. Yeah, I think that's a good place to, uh, to end our discussion there on a little, uh, on the topic of the, the future of journalism and, and where it's going. So I'd like to just say, Thank you very much to, uh, to Kevin and Dale and David for coming on and uh, doing this event. And uh, just on behalf of uh, myself and the Club of Pep, thank you very, very much. And thank you for having us. Thank you, you all have a great evening. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye.